Welcome to Sports Performance Radio. I'm your host, B. Chavez, and I'd like to thank everyone for joining me here again. This show is um, yet a continuation of the evolution of my new radio show. And uh, the first couple shows were very, very uh, content-rich, very detail-oriented, uh, and very, very high science. Um, this show is going to be a little different. For a number of reasons, um, one of the biggest reasons is one of my major tenets with this show is to challenge myself, to try and do things uh, and talk to people and, and, and about things that uh, n- don't necessarily meet my comfort zone. Uh, I'm a science guy and I could talk science forever, uh, but it's also necessary to uh, go in some other directions and explore some other avenues. And and this show is going to be just that. Uh, not that it's not science-rich, not that it's uh, way outside of the for- forum that I've been presenting, but it is going to be a little different, and it's the continued experimentation that is ultimately going to be this show. So today's episode um, is, is an interview with Mr. Willie Wessels. Uh, for those of you that don't know the name, stop what you're doing right now and Google it. Um, that'll give you some background. But Mr. Willie Wessels was the 13th man to ever squat 1,000 pounds in legal competition. And not only that, but at the time, he was the lightest man to do so. Um, in and of itself, that's remarkable and, and amazing and exceptional. But the real reason I wanted to bring... Mr. Wessels to the radio is the way in which he did it, the the, the system of training in which he used, the style and, and motif and mindset that brought him to that thousand pound level uh, is very different than what you find today. And that's really what I wanted to get with this show. Um, Willie did this squat in uh, 1995. So it's literally was 20 years ago. So we're talking about events from two decades ago. So the fine details aren't necessarily there in Willie's recall. But what is there is the the style and attitude. And what you'll find is it's very different than the modern approach. Uh, and that's the purpose of my doing this show, is to kind of compare and contrast. Everyone today is so familiar with the... The, the, the kind of the, I even hate to say their name, but the West Side model, this model of, you know, of, of, of a heavy, you know, kind of max effort day and then a, a lighter, higher speed dynamic this thing day and all sorts of gadgets and accoutrement, uh, chains and bands and foam rubber and all this ridiculous stuff. Uh, and to, it's, it's so ubiquitous at this point. It's so commonplace that the concept that these things were once not part of standard training, that this is a very new approach. And people did, in fact, squat a thousand pounds previous to the implementation of all this nonsense. And uh, people did it uh, very, very, very cleanly uh, at low body weights. Um, so this this idea that this is the way you do it now uh, really, to me, is kind of false, uh, kind of misleading uh, a lot of things. Um, things you'll hear from Willie is, you know, you heard nothing about bands or chains or boxes, no box squats. Other other c- contrasts is uh, Willie was a relatively narrow squatter. He was a very low squatter. So his stance was small, you know, m- his footprint was much smaller. Depth was low. So it's very, very different in every way. And I really want people to reflect on that as Willie gives his recount of you know, how he did it and when he did it and that sort of thing. Because I just think it's very valuable to realize that, you know, good planning, hard work, simple equipment, simple strategies can achieve the same and in some cases even superior results to all of this modern, what I think is nonsense. So that is going to be the root of today's show. In a couple seconds, we're going to go to that interview with Willie. Um, And before that, we're going to do something, again, a little different for me, a little outside of my normal comfort zone, is previous to this radio show, many of you know, I was the co-host of another, and uh, I did a number of pieces for them, and uh, I was reflecting, doing some research for an upcoming show, and uh, I, I was reflecting on some of the pieces I did from there, and I found one that I had actually forgotten about. Uh, it's, a, it's a small piece on economy and uh, commerce and, and community in strength sports, 
And I, I listened to it, and it was very appropriate to what I was researching. And I realized, wow, this is a really good piece. I feel kind of, uh, I feel kind of silly rehashing an old piece, but I felt that maybe it was necessary to put it on my new show, put it on Sports Performance Radio, just to bring it, bring it back to light. Let people in a new, you know, hear some old material in a new forum. Uh, it's good material. I think it's very appropriate for everyone to listen to. So we're going to play that. And then we're going to jump to the interview with Willie Wessels, and we're going to get right to it. So you're about to hear a quick piece from the, quote, old radio show, and then you're going to hear Willie Wessels recount his assault and conquest of the 1,000-pound squad. So there you are. We'll get to it in just a second. I would very much like to talk about consumerism slash commercialism in strength sports. It's very relevant, folks. Um, have a lot of friends. I have a lot of friends in the in the mid and top tier of uh, strongman powerlifting. And one thing I hear over and over and over is, "Oh, there's no money in strength sports. There's no money in strength sports." You know, all the big corporations, all they care about is CrossFit and bodybuilding and general fitness, and there's no money in strength sports. Well. You're right. They're right. It's correct. But there's a reason for it, boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen. There's a reason. There's always a reason. And I don't want to, you know, lament on this, and I don't want to get on my box and, you know, pontificate. But the reality is, the reason there's no money in strength sports is because, by and large, there's no solidarity in strength sports. Um, Almost every one of you within the sound of my voice purchases products. You buy vitamins, supplements, protein powders, uh, gym apparel, you buy products. How many of you really consider whether the money you're spending is spent on companies that spend money on you? Watch the World's Strongest Man. Watch the World Powerlifting Championships. Watch the Olympic Games. Watch strength sports. Whose banners do you see? The list is pretty damn short. Um, I have no particular love affair with them, um, certainly not paid to promote them, but Metrex jumps to mind. For a decade, the world's strongest man was promoted by Metrex. Metrex cut a check, both to the television and to the athletes, to run the world's strongest man. To me, that matters. When I walk into a convenience store, Jones in for a quick snack, and I look at their array of protein bars, I don't see anything but the Metrex bar. There's probably a better bar out there. There's probably one that suits my needs momentarily better than others. But you know what? I know that that $3 I'm going to give to Metrex, a couple cents of that's going to filter back to my world. That's relevant. That's consumerism done properly. Know what your money's buying. It's not just buying the product. It's not just buying the thing. How many thousands and millions of you are buying products that they then take and put into a marketing budget to sell to CrossFitters and bodybuilders and all sorts of things. Nothing wrong with any of those things, but that's not you. That's not solidarity. If you're a strength athlete, if you're a real strength athlete, you need to make sure that your hard-earned money supports your hard-earned endeavor. If you're going to be a strength athlete, you need to make sure that the companies you're purchasing support strength. You need to let them know. Uh, Think about it this way. If all of us collectively got together, and granted, the world of strength is tiny compared to almost anything. There's probably more bowlers in the world than there are strength athletes. But if we all got together and collectively said, we will not buy 
and name something. X. We're not going to buy Coca-Cola until they acknowledge strength sports. You know what? There's a bean counter behind a computer somewhere that's going to notice that we're not purchasing their product. They're going to notice a 0.5% dip in sales. And they're going to wonder why. And they're going to investigate. And you know what? They might even spend a nickel on advertising to strength athletes. It works. Money is the ultimate coin of the realm, folks. If you deprive them of money, they're going to sniff around and ask why. Consumerism, commercialism. Every single hard-earned dollar in your wallet should be spent judiciously to people that you want to have your money and that might actually filter back to you. It's how you build an economy and a community. Okay? I'm not trying to go overboard on this, folks, but it matters. Okay? And it matters in ways that maybe you don't even consider. For instance, if there is a company that you do like their product, say you like product X, Y, and Z, but they don't support strength sports, tell them about it. Right now, I'm speaking to you via social media. Okay, We have unlimited instantaneous access to almost everyone everywhere. Send them a message. Send them a tweet. Send them a, an email. Say, say something on Facebook. Say, you know, I love your products, but I don't love the fact that you don't love me. Okay? And tell them why. Okay? Tell them, you know, you'd be proud to support their products in your community if they did something for your community. If, if even half, even if 25% if of us started doing that, There'd be money in strength sports. There'd be money in powerlifting. There'd be money in strongman. There's billions of dollars out there, folks. It's just a matter of allocation. Those companies don't have anything against us. They would gladly spend their money on strength sports if they were led to believe that that money would make them money. It's simple. It's consumerism. It's the way markets work. If we collectively can get some solidarity and stop our infighting and our stupidity and collectively direct ourselves, we can make better, stronger, faster athletes that make more money. That's right. We can do that. We have that sort of power. Okay, And it's here in this sphere of social media, connect, connectivity, and community, folks. Boys and girls, we can do this. Okay? Collectively, think about the money you're spending. Think how hard it is to earn your money. And think that it should be that hard for a company, a product manufacturer, to earn your money. Okay, Think, it, think of it that way. Think they should have to work as hard to get your money as you had to work to get it in the first damn place. Okay, Yeah, it might make a hardship for you here and there. It might make it a little harder to do what you want or get what you want. It might not be as easy. But you know what? Neither is squatting 500 pounds. Neither is a 400-pound bench press. Neither is loading a damn rock on a big pedestal. None of this shit's easy. So stop your whining. Stop your crying that there's no this and there's no that and there's no money and there's no anything. And get to work making it. Folks, we can do this. So enough bitching. A little food for thought. Commercialism slash consumerism by strength athletes to make the world of strength better. It's a real thing, folks. We really can do this. Until next time, B. Chavez, Evil Genius Sports Performance. Stay strong. Misty morning, out in the sky. As promised, we are on the phone with one of the real deals. This name is a name you need to know in powerlifting. We are on the phone with Mr. Willie Wessels, one of the kind of second wave of 1,000-pound squatters. At the time, he was the lightest man to squat 1,000 pounds, and this guy is just the real deal. So, Willie, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing fantastic. Glad to be here. I am really, really privileged to have you on the show. Um, when I started out to do this, you're the kind of person that I fantasized about coming on and doing my show. So I'm really, <laughs> really excited. And as we spoke briefly off, off uh, recording, um, I kind of had a stalker-esque 
relationship with you, I was really, really carefully watching your ascent toward the 1,000-pound squad, and uh, I followed every minute of it, and I was absolutely blown away with the process and the results. So in me, at least, you've got an enormous fan. So well, I just wanted to say that. that in public. Well, thank you, sir. I appreciate it. So as we said, I really would just like you to lead us by the hand through kind of your ascent, whatever kind of background you feel is appropriate, and then your literal week-by-week ascent on that 1,000 pounds. And just don't be afraid to spare us any details. This show is about the science. This is about how to build a 1,000-pound squad. Willie, what do you do? Well, uh, I tell you, it all started uh, in college uh, at Western Illinois University. Uh, I had some really good coaches back then. Uh, their names were Roger and Judy Getney. Uh, Judy, anybody that's a powerlifter out there, it's Judy Getney holds multiple national world records in powerlifting. Uh, I think in like a 97-pound class, 114. She might even dabble in the 123. I'm not sure if she ever got that big. She was a pretty tiny woman. But uh, what a great group to get started with. They had a powerlifting team in the basement of the Salvation Army at uh, in McCole, Illinois, at Western. And I... They kind of pulled me in one day. They saw me lifting in the gym, and they're like, hey, you know, yeah, I think about some powerlifting. And I'm like, oh, you know, it's fun. You know, I sure, I like the bench press, but I don't do anything else. Oh, yeah, you know, that was big in college, you know. It's Friday night, do a bench, do curls, go out. So, uh, but no, uh, they, they actually uh, got me focused. And so in 85, I, you know, I did my first meet. And then, uh, so I was working with them. Great coaching, 85, 86, graduated. I uh, got a job in the Quad Cities teaching school up there. And when I got there, I already knew a guy in town who was a pretty good lifter. And I'd seen him, you know, through college in the summers when I'd be home or at the wintertime. And he was still there, Charlie Driscoll. I don't know if that name rings a bell to all the big deadlifters out there. Um, Charlie could pull some serious weight. Uh, he was a, a decent squatter, decent bencher, but man, could he deadlift. So and he was a 242er. He was a 42, 75, sometimes 308, depending on how many pieces he ate. He, he, he could go all the way up and down. But uh, when Charlie was a 42, he was ripped. The guy looked like a, more like a bodybuilder as a powerlifter. Uh, and so I had a lot of mentoring from him. Uh, Charlie helped me out quite a bit. I learned a lot. Did some powerlifting meets with him. Um, I think our last meet he and I did together would have been like maybe 89, somewhere in the late 80s. And... Uh, I went in as a 198-er. I think I weighed 196. We uh, competed together at Anamosa State Prison. It was a team event held at a prison up there in Iowa. And uh, wow. I believe I it was pretty cool. There were, there were like nine, ten teams there from different states. And, of course, the prison had their own team. A little intimidating going in there, uh, you know, getting uh, padded down and everybody going through your bag and, and, and everything else. But uh, the guys were all real nice, uh, very well-run meat. I believe I squatted... Uh, 602 that day. Uh, benched. That's oh, triple Lord. bodyweight squat early on. That's a good number. That's how I got started. Yeah, that's where I basically, I was, I was, you know, I could squat right around there. I pulled upper fives at that same meet. I want to say 577 for some reason. I think the bar was two pounds heavy. That's why I came out that. And I benched, what, 425 or so. And I, don't, I didn't wear a shirt back then. That was raw. So I was just about 1602 total. At 198, uh, back in the early days. So I had a good foundation to, uh, start from, uh, and then, uh, from there, you know, uh, kept training and, and competing, uh, through, uh, the early 90s, competed several shows, uh, different nationals, and slowly but surely got a little bit better, and, uh, and then of course at some point, you know, your, your, your body just doesn't want to make 98 anymore, so I moved up to 220s, and, but I competed at about 210. It's usually where my weight was when I competed at 220. And it just you know, took my time and let my body fill out. I think I actually finally weighed in at 220 in 94 uh, when I did the Junior Nationals up in Chicago. Won that uh, up there at 220. And I, I competed in Enzer gear, Enzer uh, bench shirt, Enzer squat suit. And Mr. Ernie Franz was there at the show watching, and he saw me lift. I think I squatted then around 810. And benched somewhere around 562, rings the bell, and then pulled around 730 there and all injured gear. And Ernie walked up to me and said, hey, you did pretty good because you wear my equipment, you'll lift a lot more. So that was the beginning of our friendship. And I started making the trip from St. Louis up to Aurora 
two, you know, one or one or two times a month, and sometimes I bring guys up with me and uh, started training there with, um, you know, Bill Mickles and so many. I can't even begin to name them. There were so many. There would be 20, 30 lifters in there every Saturday morning. We would have three mile lifts going, and based on how much you lifted, there was a mile lift you got to go on. So if you came in there and you weren't squatting a certain mile away, yeah, you moved down. You moved down the mile lift a few, few spots. Uh, but, you know, I was in there with, with Bill Nichols, you know, taking a crack at a thousand pound squat. So it was motivational. It was motivation to, uh, you know, put more weight on my back and go. And I kind of had a routine in my head that I, I, I had done, uh, in, throughout my career. And so when I got to Ernie, Ernie and I got talking about it and, uh, Ernie was like, man, you're not far off what I do. Uh, so we had a lot in common and, you know, he hooked me up with, uh, you know, his uh, suits and I still have two of those suits. Uh, here. Wow, that's, classic uh, I Grant suits. Oh, that's, I tell you what, they hold up. That's gold, yeah. Uh, they're, they're a little looser on me now. I think I weigh about 205 right now. <laughs> but, okay. uh, you know, back then, I had them, they were made for me when I was like right at 220. Um, and I still use them, uh, even when I moved up into the 42 class, even though I was never a full 42. I, I got up close at one point, but I was pretty fat. Uh, once I hit 230, I, I, it all went right to my gut, I think. Um, but I remember, you know, they're squatting and working my way up the line. And honestly, Ernie was right. Uh, once I put his suit on, um, I remember in the gym, boy, probably two months, uh, in the training up there in the gym, um, I, I hit an unofficial 900 pound squat and, uh, just, just drilled it, smoked it. And Ernie looked at me and he's like, holy cow. He goes, that was easy. He said, and then of course Ernie goes, put a thousand on there. I looked at him like he was out of his mind. I said, are you kidding me? That's the first time I've ever done 900. Um, and he had these uh, knee wraps called TP5000s. I don't know if you've ever tried those. Uh, Absolutely. They're, they're, they're some awesome knee wraps. And see, before that, I was using Enzer knee wraps, uh, which I do like. I had the double golds, and I think he even came out with a triple gold there for a while. And I used those back in the day with the champion suit. And then I switched over to Ernie's suits and Ernie's knee wraps. And uh, so I went from, you know, I hit 8, 10 in the meet, but I was good for more uh, that day. I, you know, I'm not going to, I mean, I, I'd squatted, you know, 840, in the gym. So, but as soon as I put Ernie's gear on with his knee wraps, oh, yeah, 900 pounds went up uh, really good. Well, then, you know, he had some really good lifters in there. So people who, I'd never had anybody wrap my knees before. First, yeah, I'd always done it myself up to that point. Well, then Ernie's like, hey, you know, let me, Mike Goldman, uh, there was a young lady, Sue, and I cannot think of her last name, that she could put a knee wrap on, you would bring tears to your eyes. So uh, I remember, you know, a few more months down the road, again, we're still in 94 uh, so I won senior nationals, and then I did world, one world that year, all at 220. But I remember she was like, let me wrap your knees one time for you. She wrapped my knees so hard, and so I, I couldn't even hardly bend my knee with 900 pounds on my back. So Ernie did put 1,000 pounds on there. So I took 1,000 down for a curfew squat. It hurt so bad. I stood up with it easy, but it was sky high, and I had blood running down the back of my calves. She put a wrap on me, and I'd never experienced that before. But I kind of liked it, so uh, I started training. You know, I, we, we came up with a new scheme where she would wrap my knees and say, you want an A, B, or C wrap? <laughs> I'm like, on my lighter ones, give me a C. You know, medium to heavy, B. It wasn't until I got up to handling upper nines or even a grand. I said, give me that A wrap. Um, and same with straps. You know, when you put a suit on, uh, straps would stay down, uh, usually until I got over 900 pounds before I started putting my straps up just so I kind of could breathe a little bit. Um, and it never really would settle in light until I got real heavy with the weight. Uh, I noticed that, too. I, I remember that. But uh, And then Ernie came up with uh, some more different gear. He had the canvas suits came out, and they came out with the combination canvas uh, polyester suit on the side of the leg so it could expand with you a little bit because guys had trouble sitting in. So we were, you know, I was kind of like a guinea pig up there for all the suits. Uh, and his shirts, you know, I like his shirts. I think I even still have one or two of those shirts somewhere in the bag, uh, uh, in the closet. I, I like to hang on to that stuff. I figure maybe I'll, uh, there, there's a gentleman down in uh, Texas, Bill Holland. Uh, he told me he wants all my old gear someday because he's going to have a strongman powerlifting museum. <laughs> okay. So I, I'm saving it all for him. Um, but yeah, I, you know, so I basically 94 through almost all of 95, almost two years there. You know, I was a nine to, you know, low nine, low nine squatter. I think we went to, uh, gosh, Nationals in Texas in 95. 
And uh, that was my, I decided to, after I won uh, 220s in 94, I said, let me move up, you know. I, I could have stayed 220, but I thought, ah, let's go up. So I went in at 226, went in the Nationals. What a group. Holy cow, who was there? Steve Goggins. Um, I want to say Phil, big guy. He was a 42er, but he looked like he was about a 75er. Phil something, and it just escapes me his last name. Real good lifter, built like a brick house. Um, who else? Curtis Leslie. Uh, Nick Lavatoni. Lavatini? Lavatola. Nick Lavatola. Nick Lavatola. He was a really, really good lifter. And oh, a good we bodybuilder also. Oh, we were all in the same class together. Yeah, Nick Lavatola died a few years ago, unfortunately. But, yeah, what a great athlete. No way. Was. I didn't know that. Yeah, well, let me tell you what. what a, no, that's okay. But, yeah, I had those. The five of us were in there in the 42 class. And, of course, I was like, everybody kept asking me, hey, you don't, you don't lift now. This is the 42 class. Because <laughs> right, I was so right. small. I was so small compared to everybody else. But I was like, no, I'm actually in the 42s. <laughs> so, we, you know, we did battle, the five of us. And uh, believe it or not, Nick took fifth with a 2,100-pound total. Yeah, talk about crazy. And I think I took third. And I think I, I'm going to say I was right around 22-ish. And, uh, and then, when, uh, of course, then Nick, I mean, uh, Phil and, uh, Steve, you know, obviously took first and second, and they got invited to Worlds. Well, Phil decided he wasn't going to go to Worlds, so they asked me then, since I took third to go. So I went with Steve. We competed in, uh, 95 Worlds together. Gosh, I want to say, you know, we're out there, we're out there going, and I weighed in, like I said, just barely over. I was like 221. Because <laughs> I, qual- I, I qualified a 42 class, so I had to go 42s. And uh, that was it. That's just where I weighed. So I went in, went at it. I think I opened at 850-ish right now. It was 849 kilos to pounds and uh, smoked it. So I jumped up to like 9, maybe 903, might have 903, smoked it. And, of course, um, Steve opened up like at something, upper nines, and went straight to 1,003 on his second and uh, destroyed it. And so... I had nothing to lose. You know, he was ahead of me by 100 pounds. So Ernie talked me into taking 1,003 for my third. And I was like, oh, my gosh, what am I getting myself into? But oh, I'd had it on my back a few times. I'd never successfully uh, gone all the way down with it and come up with it. So I figured, what the heck? You know, I got nothing to lose here. I really felt like I had 950 in me, but I thought, why not? Let's go for it. So the crowd, I got to say, was going crazy uh, when they, they announced I was coming out, take a thousand three at a body weight of two twenty one. The place was rocking. I mean, I had goosebumps on goosebumps. I, I was so psyched up. Uh, Peter Treglone was the head judge. Okay, of England. outstanding. Talk about it. Talk about a massive man. Uh, but he was the head judge, and I've got the neat Pete, good guy. So I unrack it, and, and uh, he gives me the squat signal, and I'm 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 going down with it. And I'm trying to pick a little speed, so I was like get a little pop out of the bottom, and I I took it down. And came up, and I got probably, I don't know, six or so inches up out of the pocket, and I stalled. And as soon as I stalled, I knew I, knew I was in trouble. <laughs> but, I, you know, I stayed with it, stayed with it, and uh, I couldn't even say, usually, you know, when you know you're going to miss a squat, you can say, take it at some point. I couldn't say anything, and I knew I was done. Well, Pete was looking at me, looking at my eyes, and he said he just saw my eyes slowly closing, 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 so he yelled, take it. <laughs> he said, I said, you know, it's funny you say that after I got up, and he and I talked later on that night, and I told him, I said, I was blacking out. Um, I could just, everything was getting dark all around me, and all I could see was him. <laughs> so I was about to go, and he took it just at the right time. Uh, so, but it was, it was fun. It was a good experience, but I knew with a little more work, I could get that. Ooh, let me think. This was probably in September, maybe, something like that, 95. And then I, right after that meet got over, um, there was an announcement there was going to be a, a World Record Breakers meet in uh, Chicago off Navy Pier. And uh, and I was like, oh, man, that, that's the place to go do it, you know, if you're going to do it. But anyway, at the World, finished up. I think, you know, I had a good bench, decent deadlift. I don't remember what I told. I want to say like 2254, something like that. Took second, of course, to Steve, and, but it was a lot of fun. Certainly no shame in second place to Stevie Goggins. Oh, not at all. Not I, at all. I not a drop of shame in that. No, no, no. He was he was the man, no doubt about it. Still is. Oh, yes. Great guy. <laughs> uh, we're the same age. So, you know, it's kind of funny. You know, he, Ed Cohen, and I are all the same age. Twitter always joke about it. We're born the same year. Uh, so, it's kind of funny. Uh, but anyway, <clears throat> I, I decided to just, you know, start training, and I, I tried to eat. I was doing everything I could to gain some weight. 
Um, I think I got up to about 2.30 for Navy Pier. So it really, it helped me. Just that little extra weight gave me a little better leverage. And training went good through uh, October. And the Navy Pier was sometime in November, I think. But I was there for one reason and one reason only. And that was to go for a 1,000-pound squat. Well, Steve held the record at 1,003. So I knew if I was going to go for it, I had to go for 1,004. Uh, so I opened up at 9.14 and smashed it, just crushed it, dropped it, smashed it. So I was like, record, second attempt, I'm going for it, 1,004. <clears throat> I'm sitting down in my chair, Steve Golden, let's see, Mike Golden, wrapping my knees, and oh, my God, he's just wrapping the crap out of me. I get up, you know, they get my straps up, I can't find my belt. Somebody had taken my belt off my chair, and I'm up right now. So, of course, somebody hands me their belt. Well, like somebody else putting their hat on your head. It just didn't feel right. So I had this belt, which felt really flimsy to me on. Tried to get it as tight as I could, but it didn't feel right. So but anyway, I go out there. I pick it. I start going down with it, and I knew immediately this is not going to happen. This belt just it didn't even fit me right. And so about halfway down, I, I yelled, take it. And uh, I let the spotters handle it. I don't think I helped them a little bit. Uh, <laughs> we put it back in the rack, and, of course, Everybody in the crowd's like, oh, you know, he doesn't have it. He doesn't have it. I knew I could do it. I just had to find my belt. So I got my wraps off, took the straps down. I'm walking around backstage trying to figure out where my belt is. I find it. So it comes back around. Everybody else goes, goes, and it gets back to me. And, of course, I go for it again. I got my own belt this time. Felt really good, you know. Got the suit set nice. Wraps are good. I'm like, I can get this. So go up there, unrack it, um, set down on it. I had somebody from the side call me. So I want to make sure I got it down. Took it down, came up with it. And I hit that same spot that I did in Columbus and stopped. And I thought, oh, no. So I'm, I'm grinding away on it. I'm, real, I'm throwing my head back to the point where I'm almost going to fall over backwards. But I knew I had to drive and then just try to force my hips underneath me. And I'm pulling through. <laughs> my, my, a big chunk of my family was there, aunts and uncles and my mom and dad. They're taking pictures. My mom says she took like five pictures before I finally finished the squat. <laughs> she goes, that was the slowest lift I've ever seen you do. <laughs> And I finish it, I get the rack signal, and I couldn't even move my feet. I literally just kind of fell into the rack. Thank goodness. Uh, I didn't have to take a step because I don't think I could have. And I got two whites, one red. So I got the record, um, which was pretty cool. That was in 95, dude. That was already 20 years ago. can't believe it. Yeah, that, was, uh, that was late in 95, wasn't it? Yes, late in 95. Oh, I was just going to say, I personally remember, well, actually, I don't remember the event. I remember the Powerlifting USA coming like two months later that covered the event. And I remember being excited that it had happened. I know. I weighed, I probably weighed right at 230, I believe, okay. is what I was at. Because I think I weighed, I, I weighed in, I stripped down, and I think I'm pretty sure I was 230. So, and that made which, you at the time the lightest man to have squatted 1,000 pounds, yes? Yes, that was. And then so I think, not only uh, did you eclipse a Stevie Goggins record, but you did it at a lower body weight. Yes. That was pretty cool. It was, I mean, I was, we went out that night, and we hung out with a bunch of characters and just had a good old time. That, historically, that puts it in context. That's really great story and great info. But now give us a little bit of like what went into the day-to-day to build that. Um, well, you know, how many days a week did you squat? Roughly what kind of format? G- give us some the whole idea of the show to some really the, to the, some the, the meat listener. potatoes. <laughs> the meat and potatoes of it all. Absolutely. And, and really, really the biggest thing I want is when I want when any listener that ever listens to one of my shows, no matter what the topic, when they put down their iPod, I want them to have at least one or two things that they can take to the gym tomorrow. Well, okay. Well, here we go. Uh, that, I did. Look, I did what looking for. I did a three week cycle. Basically, is what I did. I had three weeks and uh, a three week rotation. So no matter whether you're three weeks, six weeks, nine weeks, you know, a year out from whatever your goal is, I would do a three week training cycle. So basically, I would train uh, raw. Sometimes I would sometimes I would train uh, raw like during the week. Well, no, sorry, during the week I did train raw. On Saturdays I would equip up. Tuesday would be raw squats, raw deadlifts. Uh, Wednesday would be all upper body accessories. I wouldn't bench. I might do close grips, but I would never bench. Uh, and again, no gear except for maybe a wrist wrap or a belt, something like that. And that was my Tuesday and Wednesday. And then on Saturdays, we would be full gear, almost neat type style conditions. And we would have, you know, even here in St. Louis, you know, we might have 10, 12, 14 guys in their training gals, training, and it was a meat atmosphere. Uh, you would go in and you would, we would take first, second, third attempts. We warm up and do it just as so you kind of knew where you're at and what you were doing. So my three week cycle, 
the first week were to be like opener type weights. So if I knew, I knew I was going to go to a meet, I'd warm up to a single, so say at, you know, 903. And, you know, of course, the, the, the stronger I got, the easier that opener was. And that's part of the mindset was to train myself to where it's like, I can do this any day of the week and twice on Sunday. Sometimes I did. And then, of course, the second week, I would get into second attempts. So I might go, you know, 953 or something like that. So I would go, uh, you know, second attempts, basically, on uh, the second week and handle it. And then on my third week, I would come back and, and take what I, where I would, thought I would shoot for for a third attempt. So I'd, I'd definitely, you know, push the grands, if not, you know, above. I think the heaviest I ever went was 1,050 um, in the gym. So, you know, I, I knew when things were feeling good, you know, I knew going into a meet pretty much what my first, second, third attempts were going to be in both bench, uh, squat, bench, and deadlift. There was never any guesswork. I knew what I was capable of. Um, I knew, though, if I came out and I hit a, you know, a PR in the squat, there was a good chance my bench might be down with it. So then I had to adjust. You know, I'd have to adjust back a little bit. And the same thing, you know, if I hit a big bench, then, you know, sometimes I, you know, my gas tank might be a little low on the deadlift. So I'd adjust my deadlifts down. And that's, that's really, wherever you're training heavy for heavy triples, doubles, or singles, um, you know, you've got to know anytime you push one level up, the other level is going to drop a little bit. Okay, quick, quick questions. Just, I mean, I'm, we're getting the information and, I, and I'm loving it. Um, so Saturday was literally a mock meet. Am I to assume you really did no, no real work? Everything was just singles as if you were warming up in the back room and then. Well, I know, I mean, I, I would, I would train, you know, when I'm, as I'm warming up and I'm taking weights, I mean, you know, I'd get up to, like, I might do, uh, 850 for a triple. Okay. Before I actually take my opener or my second or whatever it is I was taking. So, I mean, I was doing, you know, I usually do, uh, if, if I'm, if when I knew I was going heavy, uh, heavy, heavy, uh, let's say I take seven, seven fifty for five, um, eight fifty for three, and then go for, you know, nine a quarter for a single. And then, okay. you know, and if, and if I was happy with that that day, cause that was my goal, then I would stop there and we'd start warming up, you know, start working, uh, towards the bench. Okay, and that was going to be my very next question. Is you you literally did them in meat order? You squat, benched, and deadlift. You didn't. Uh, I know some people that use that kind of format, and they'll they'll actually squat and deadlift because they're so similar, and then bench last. You did not do that. No, I did it in order because I always want to know you know how I felt after a heavy squat going to bench because um, I always I know a lot of times in at nationals at worlds you know like that lower back would cramp up sometimes after a good squat session. And so I wanted to feel that in training. Uh, that way I knew what how to deal with it. I ended up uh, getting a prescription for potassium from my wow. doctor. And I, I would take, a, like a, I think it was a 25 milligram potassium pill after I had been squatting because I knew if I didn't, oh, my lower back, when I, you know, you try to get that natural arch, you know, uh, with the bench. And if I did too much, if I arched too hard, oh, wow, I'm locked up. And it basically would waste at least one or two attempts trying to work the cramps out of my lower back. So right. that's why I, I figured out right away, okay, I need some potassium. And as soon as I started taking those, I, never a problem again. Never had a problem with that again. And so, and then, and then, and then, go ahead. And then after, like I said, after the benches, warm up for the deadlift, again, you know, after a big squat, a big push-pull day, sometimes the deadlift suffers. And I think that's why a lot of times we don't see big deadlifts like we used to uh, back in the day. And when we've seen, you know, squats and bench go up because of good gear, Unfortunately, there's not a whole lot of gear out there that's going to increase your deadlift. So you've got to pull. I mean, you've got to get in there and pull. And I always try to pull on the, under the worst conditions. I'd pull well, in the heat, the heat of the afternoon in St. Louis, wherever, wherever I had to do to make it harder on me to, so I would be better in a show. That is a, a very antiquated and lost attitude that I personally prescribe to. I think that uh, people make too, too, too much emphasis on uh, – Perfect conditions and getting PRs and not enough emphasis on just getting work done and getting yourself straight. Oh, sure. I, I totally agree. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I, I never wanted the best conditions uh, because I knew there's a good chance I might go to a meet and maybe the air conditioning will go out. Uh, you know, I wanted to train with a bunch of people. Some days I train faster. Other days I train slower because, again, we get meets. Some meets, you know, your flight's small. You may be following yourself. Uh, other meets, you might have 20 minutes between your lifts. So I wanted to be ready for every possible scenario. 
Okay, so now backtracking to this Tuesday where you trained raw and kind of more yep. in an accessory fashion, what took place on that day? Well, I just, you know, we'd squat raw, and, uh, you know, some days we worked heavy, up heavy raw. I think the heaviest raw squat I worked up to on a Tuesday was 7 to 7.50, somewhere in there. But uh, I didn't do that. I usually tried to keep the weight a little bit lighter, uh, and then that's when I would get my work in. You know, we maybe I'd squat, you know, 600 for 10 or something like that, or work up to, a, you know, a good work set. Um, and, you know, same thing with uh, deadlift. You know, I, I would pull both conventional and sumo just to get the, the work in for both. Uh, I pulled conventional most of my career, and it wasn't until towards the end of my career I started pulling more sumo because I felt like it. it my back uh, was uh, obviously not used as much as when I pulled conventional. I got a lot more hamstrings, quads, and hips into the deadlift. So I felt a little fresher going into the deadlift because uh, after I got done squatting, my, you know, I was a fairly narrow or narrow stance squat. I wasn't super narrow, but I was narrower than a lot of people. Um, and so my back would take a lot of the brunt of it. So I, I tried to, I if I go to sumo, let's see if that helps. And it took me, took me about a year to convert over, but it, it finally got where I was finally pulling the same numbers, sumo, as I was, uh, conventional. But it just took time. Okay. So basically I'm hearing a, a structure that's not, radically unlike what's accepted today. Um, you're talking about a, you know, a raw kind of day where you're really just doing work for the sake of training the muscles, hypertrophy, acquisition of strength, that sort of thing. Uh, and then a day where you're really basically just practicing the meat itself, the meat atmosphere, and it's kind of a mock event every Saturday, yes? Every Saturday we do that, yes. And so, yeah, Tuesday and Wednesday were basically accessory. You know, whatever... Whatever I could do, you know, if I felt like I needed to get a, a higher rep day in, uh, just because I was like getting a little burnt out on the heavier sets, uh, that's what I would do on Tuesdays and on Wednesdays. And how many vaguely, uh, you know, obviously you don't have your journal in front of you, but I mean vaguely how many work sets would you do on that day? Or was that predicated on how you felt and where you were in, you know, your, uh, yeah. your well, big, bigger funny. picture? I, I felt like I was doing the Mike Menster workout, uh, but with a power team. I kind of went by how I felt, instinctive training. <laughs> I remember remember reading Mike's book years ago in, in bodybuilding, and uh, I thought, you know, that makes a lot of sense, but uh, I didn't realize I did it uh, until I started paying attention. I was always, whatever I was planning to do, it usually changed because I, I had to go by how I felt, and uh, I felt by doing that, I, I kept myself from getting injured, you know, because there was just some days, you know, we all go in the gym, and you're just not feeling it that day, and it was like, why fight it? Uh, sometimes I pack my bag up and leave and come back the next day because I felt so much better having that extra day's rest. And there, there were times I warmed up, you know, with 135 on the squat and I was just like, okay, something's not right today, you know, and I'd leave the gym, go get some meat, go lay down and rest, you know, get a good night's sleep in, get hydrated, come back in the next day. Felt like a million bucks. Uh, so you, you know, so you just had to listen to your body. Yeah, auto regulation is very much the uh, the new buzz, and and it, and it's really not the new buzz; it's the old buzz. To be honest, yeah, yeah. You, you, me, and many other you know really really good lifters were using simple techniques like that. Um, now, now something you I want to really highlight that you didn't mention is um, being kind of the, you know if not an Ernie France guy, very much influenced by the France model and the France mentality. Um, I'm not hearing anything about any bands or chains or boxes or any even clever replacement exercises or, dare I say, special exercises. It, it sounds very simple. It sounds as if you just squatted in contest fashion on a regular yeah, basis. Yeah, I mean, it was. It was really – it was very basic. Yeah. We didn't We didn't have a reverse hyper machine. We didn't have a glute ham raise machine. Um, you know, we, we didn't even have that stuff available to us. I mean, nobody – was really doing band work, uh, you know, back in the, at least not where I was, I'm sorry, you know, I guess they weren't doing it, but they weren't doing it where I lived, um, or even up at Ernie's. I don't think I ever saw a band up there uh, when I was up there. Um, I know there's, there was a group of powerlifters that I worked out with in the, through the 90s, and then once I went into Strongman in 98, you know, they obviously continued doing their powerlifting, and then I, I stopped in to see them probably like the early 2000s one day at their gym, and there were bands everywhere. Everybody's doing bands and boards. And I was like, well, what are you guys doing? And they started showing me some of their workouts. And I'm like, okay. You know, I'm, I'm, and I'm like, that's that's great. I mean, they you know, reverse band, bands on top, bands on bottom, you know, one board, two board, three board. And uh, I just, just watched and paid attention. 
and you know, I, I see what they're, we're trying to accomplish with it. But, uh, I said, I finally just asked the question one day. I said, what, at what point do you actually just put the weight on you and go? And, well, uh, they're, they're like, well, you know, once we get close to the show, then we're, you know, we're, we're suited up and we start handling the weight. Well, then I noticed when they were close to the show and they were suited up and handle the weight, they'd be shaking. You could just see their, you know, central nervous system just wasn't ready for it. And I'm like, you know, guys, maybe you need to start those lifts a little sooner instead of waiting, you know, till, you know, six weeks out from the show. Maybe you need a little more time on that, a little less of the other work that you were doing. It just seemed like a lot of their work was more accessory work than it was actually less squat, less bench, less deadlift. I, I, I very much agree with you. I, you know, my, my personal opinions, and, and these interviews are very much not intended to be a reflection of my personal opinions. But in this case, said guest, i.e. Willie Wessels, and I line up perfectly in that I, I think most of that stuff is, is just nonsense, and it's, an, it's a reason to play with gadgets. Um, nothing's going to make your squat better than squatting the way you intend to on the platform. Um, uh, yeah, I, I would have to agree with that. I, I think, yeah, you got to, you, you know, I don't know. If I, I, you know, I think of all other sports and how people train. Um, you know, it's different if you're, you know, if you're a basketball player and you're doing some type of a uh, cross training to get yourself in shape to play basketball. I understand that. But bottom line, they got to go out there and shoot free throws and do layups and cross over and work with the basketball if they're going to become a good basketball player. And I kind of like, well, if I, if I want to squat a lot, I probably need to work on squatting. Yep. Um, I, I spent a short time, um, you know, and this really is meant to be your interview, but th- this, this segues perfectly. I spent a short time uh, being kind of an exchange program in uh, the Czech Republic, working with some Olympic lifting coaches, and there were literally these giant, literally giant, like probably six-foot-tall letters around the top of the, the, the weight room that obviously spelled something, but it was in Krelik and, you know, Eastern European. I have no idea what it said. And I <laughs> asked one of their coaches, and uh, – they had to pass through the room because to get to English, it required going through two or three different people. But finally, when it got translated to me in English, the rough translation was, to squat a lot, one must squat a lot. <laughs> I love it. And uh, it's amazing how that <laughs> simple premise seems to shine through over and over. <laughs> but, oh, uh, no I'm, doubt. I'm not, here to ba- I'm not here to bash the West Side. I'm really, truly interested in in how you did it, and I'm very um, gratified and pleased to find out that it was as simplistic as lots of squats, benches, and deadlifts, and a shitload of hard work. Uh, no, I find that very was. interesting. Yep, that's, it's really that there was no, no trick to it at all. It was very simple, and uh, get to it. <laughs> get after it. Um, a, a question, a number of quick questions, but you know, specifically to that 1,000-pound. Your preparatory, your kind of prep cycle um how many weeks was that roughly from deciding i'm going to do that meet to implementing the specific training to it how many three-week rotations did it take you to do that um well i mean i i would train you know year round uh with a three-year rotation you know i started started that in the uh late 80s and basically ran with that all the way up through 97 my last year powerlifting so, you know, now granted, obviously, uh, with a little better equipment that I wore, I was able to, it allowed me the confidence to push a little bit harder. I, there's no doubt in my mind. I'm never going to say the equipment didn't help me. It certainly mentally helped me. I, I was, and I don't, I never felt like I was scared to try a certain weight. Well, know, I, I suspect I having a crowd like that of Ernie France behind you also, uh. <laughs> oh, it was a drilling rush. Yeah, yeah it, 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 it limits your doubts, I would think. Oh, I mean, just you, you look around the room and you're like, "Wow, these guys are these guys are superstars," and I'm in here listening with them. So I gotta lift heavy. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. Even at that point, even, even by 1995, Ernie was already uh, not young and uh, still a what, probably an 800 pound squatter in that era. Uh, let's see, Ernie was what 62 then, I guess 60, something like 62, and he squatted like 804 or some 806, some crazy number, um, sure. and. I remember when I was, you know, handling the thousand on my back, Ernie would say, oh, I'm going to try it. I'm like, oh, my Lord, are you kidding me? You know, and his goal was to get to eight, you know, back in the eight. And but he took down, I saw him take down a thousand pounds at 62 years old. And he had, I, he was, he, it was like uh, uh, the old overload benches, you know, when you lower it down nice and easy. He lowered that thing right down in the pocket, and then the guys helped him back up. 
I was, it was impressive. I was like, yikes. <laughs> I don't think I want to do that at 62. <laughs> well, that's how you, that's how you lead a team, though. That's how you, you know, oh, follow me. I know where I'm going. Well, and I think we're 30 now, 82. Yeah. And he's still lifting. So, yeah, he uh, did a triple body weight just, uh, what, four or five years ago, I think. I know. I, I tell you what, I, I talk, get to talk to him every once in a while and all this, the old stories come out and you know, we have a good old time. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Ernie, uh, was definitely a pioneer and he's still doing it. You know, like That's you and I just talked about certain lifters we know that aren't here anymore. And I think of how long Ernie's been doing this for and he's still going. It's, it's impressive. And tragically, in my opinion, never got the credit he deserved for literally innovating the sport in which we all enjoy. I mean, Ernie was there when it was created. Oh, he was. He was there from the very beginning. And, uh, you know, and unfortunately, you know, I think that's what kind of hurt powerlifting a little bit. And I'm sure you already knew, though, this. It comes down to everybody was together. You know, somebody wasn't happy with something that was going on. And so, all right, I want to take my guys and I'm going to go start this group. And then somebody's not happy from that group, and they're going to take their guys and go start this group. And that's pretty much how all these federations popped up. I mean, they started popping up left and right. Yeah, it's sad. It, it really didn't help the sport. It, it didn't. No. But, you know, Ernie, Ernie was he, – he wanted me to stay in, in powerlifting, and um, the strongman got big back, you know, in 97. You know, they had Will Strong's band in Vegas, and, and Bill Holland launched North American Strongman in 97, and then uh, Chris Mavromatis here in St. Louis, you know, started Strongman, a big show here in St. Louis, Strongest Man Alive in 98. Well, it was hard to pass that show, yeah? It was in my backyard, and, uh, you know, they had a 210 class, and I'm like, I can make that easy, you know? That's like almost a normal body weight for me. So uh, it was it was hard to pass up, and like I told you before when we were on the phone, I said I was always more of an athlete who did powerlifting. I was never really a powerlifter. I was more an athlete who did powerlifting because that was the thing to do. And then when Strongman came around, I was like, it was a better fit for me as an athlete to uh, Strongman. And uh, the cardio certainly helps. I like the cardio portion of Strongman. Because I will say, when I was pushing 230s, I was not in the best cardio shape. I can remember walking up a couple of flights of steps, and I was like, holy cow. I, you know, I'm 31 years old, and I was puffing like a freight train. <laughs> and then um, you, to, to – bring this to a close, and I definitely want you to talk briefly, uh, you know, or, or even not briefly for that matter. You deserve whatever time you choose, but uh, I definitely want you to talk about, you know, your, your entry into Strongman and, you know, your professional side of uh, Strongman, but I, I just want to wrap up the, the, the powerlifting thousand-pound squat talk we did because uh, I just want to highlight to the, the listeners out there that, you know, we're talking about a man who really maybe wasn't the ultimate pioneer of the 1,000-pound squat, but it was very early on. You know, we're, we're talking 1995. Most of the people listening to this probably weren't even alive, or they were certainly not lifting <laughs> weights yet. And this man squatted 1,000 pounds at 230-ish pounds of body weight with just simple squats and hard work. Um, two days a week, unequipped one day, you know, hypertrophy and hard work and a mock meet another day a week. It was really as simple as that. Uh, not to say that you, you know, clever things aren't clever and useful, but obviously they're not the end-all, be-all. Apparently just really wanting it, having a good crowd, having good coaching, and a just good hard work ethic can, in fact, culminate in a 1,000-pound squat, folks. This man is proof of it. Uh, and as I said, I watched every step of the way, and I was I was there cheering, and it, it's a real thing, and it was a beautiful thing. So with that, Willie, I really want to thank you for the info, and uh, mm-hmm. I, I really want you to uh, take a moment and self-promote, and who are you today, and what are you doing? Well, today, after uh, you know, I got in a strong man, um, you know, I, I uh, was a, a competitor and then eventually a uh, state chair, for uh, Bill Holland and North American Strongman, and then eventually took that over from Bill and ran it for 10 years. And then uh, that, that uh, after I got divorced, uh, my ex uh, got the company, and I sat on the sideline for about three years. And then, uh, you know, I, I, it was dry, I, just, I wanted to be part of it again, so I launched a brand-new company called United States Strongman, and it's been a year and three months now. And we have grown. Uh, it's, it's crazy. We have 33 states on board uh, promoting shows across the United States. Uh, 
it won't be long, and I, we got 34 and 35 waiting in the wings. I just have to go out and see what they can do before I finally make that final approval of them becoming our state reps. So uh, yeah, by the first of the year, we should have 35 states in, in, in basically a year and a half. Uh, it's wow. just amazing to me. It's grown, and uh, you know, just the you know seeing the athleticism um, of the athletes out there. You know, us being in strongman now for oh gosh. Well, in 98 is when it started for me, so uh, I always lose track of the years, but I'm, I'm what, 17 years, I guess? Something like sure, that. Yeah. Um, it's just, you know, seeing the athleticism, um, the, the the new athletes that come out, and we still have some of uh, the guys, you know, from back when I was competing, still competing in our master's division. Our master's division has just gotten so tough. Uh, you know, and every year it's going to get tougher because all these guys who are good are turning 40. So it's, it's going to be a very competitive division for years to come. Uh, they're amazing to watch. Uh, you know, we, we, uh, with the help of, uh, Chad Coy out of Indiana and Glenn Ross out of Ireland, we added a master pro class to the United States Strongman, something never had with anybody before. First time ever no. you can actually add a master, earn your pro card and go compete at master world championships. Uh, Van Hatfield. Uh, won the Master National Championships at the U.S. Strongman National Championships this year in June. He got to the island. He took second as a Master World Strongest Man. And I think he's 46 now or something like that. Uh, but Van's still strong as a horse. Uh, he's, he's amazing uh, to see him go. Uh, the guy who earned his pro card this year or show is Eric Patterson out of Arizona. And he's actually competing out at the other company's Masters Nationals this weekend in uh, Las Vegas. So um, I hope I wish Eric well. I hope he kicks him butt out there. Strong guy, super nice guy. Um, so you know, and we you know, we had a you know we actually even have a light. We gave away a lightweight master pro card and a heavyweight master pro card. And like wow. I said, no one else has ever done that before. And we did that with the masters. And so now we're we're working hard on the women's division where we have been all along. Um, I've got some things in the works right now that I can't say anything about yet, but. Uh, Things are going, and they're going the right direction. Um, I don't know if you had a chance to see our championship belts that we gave out at this year's Nationals. I did, uh, in fact. Gorgeous belts. Uh, my you know, my, my day, former I, partner, Michael A. Johnston, keeps me informed. And, uh, oh, yes, yeah. You give away beautiful, beautiful awards. Not, uh, not trinkets. Every year. Not trinkets. Yeah. They are beautiful. No, no, no trinkets here. Uh, yeah, we're going to do that every year. Uh, this next year down in Louisville, Kentucky. Which is on Fourth Street Live. I don't. Know if anybody's ever been there? It is a giant party down there, and it's all undercover. Uh, we'll probably have you know five to ten thousand spectators watching that show built in. It's going to be a rocking. And we've already posted our events uh, for next year's national championships, which is unheard of to have the events posted in September for a June nationals. Uh, so we're, we're we're breaking ground on everything. Uh, we, we, we've, we're, we're changing the game, but we're changing it for the better. And that's the main thing, and that's, that's what we're all about is helping the athletes, helping the promoters, because that's, without those, those two groups, this doesn't happen. Well, I can say with a straight face, and I think anyone that's uh, familiar with my broadcasting and who I am, you know, at least on my on-air persona, I, I'm not one to give away uh, – Free adulation, not 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 even a little bit. I'm typically pretty tough on people, and I can say that I personally have seen you on the powerlifting platform. I have personally seen you. I've actually personally competed against you in strongman, uh, and I've got my ass whooped, but nonetheless. And uh, I I know what a passionate man you are. How passionate you were about strength sports, and specifically about strongman. You really looked like a person that had found your place, found your niche. Uh, you look like you enjoyed every minute of it, even the bad ones. And uh, if you are putting even a fraction of what I saw in your eyes on the platform into the business of Strongman, you will be extraordinarily successful. Uh, that's, I, I tell my kids at school, I've been a school teacher for 30 years now, I tell them all the time, especially my athletes, if you put the same energy into your schoolwork that you put into your sports, you will be a straight-up scholar student. Absolutely. And uh, – Willie, I'm, I'm just, I'm really, I'm flabbergasted that someone of your caliber took the time to come and talk to me. I'm really, oh, anytime. really pleased anytime. that you're, uh, and I, I sincerely, I say this over and over. I, I want to say something uh, most sincerely that I just don't think it's said enough. Uh, Mr. Willie Wessels, thank you. Thank you for just 
for, for being you, doing your thing, and and just setting the world right. Thank you. Um, oh, hey, you know what? That's where it's all about community and helping people out. And it, you it live is. that life. And, and, and you can succeed at the same time. Uh, Absolutely. I just don't, don't think that message gets out enough. But uh, I really, I want to, you know, thank you for being here. Thank you for talking to my listeners. And uh, I'll do my best to promote this show, promote you and uh, and your strongman organization. Oh, thank you. I thank you for all your help. I appreciate everything you do. Thank you.